Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think... I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! Maybe, you know, I've got some sort of crazy speak up about it mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the Changemaker series. I'm Virginia Hausiger and it's lovely to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy, housed in Canberra's old Parliament House, where I've had the wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian Women Changemakers. In this series, we dive into the personal stories of some of those outstanding women, both young and old, and spanning a diverse range of backgrounds. Now, while their stories are incredibly different, there is a constant theme, and that is courage, amazing courage. To each of these women, I ask four key things. I ask about the moment that fired them into action, the biggest challenge they've battled along the way the source of their inspiration, and very importantly, I think, the cost, the personal cost they've had to pay in their determination to create and to build change. So stick with us for this series as you're in for a feast of raw, real and very inspiring stories. You can download Broad Talk and a new episode will drop in your feed each Friday. So do download it, rate and review it and reach out. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us at hello at broadtalk.net. You can find us on Insta at Broadtalkers. 
Facebook, just look for Broad Talk and you can join the group, the Broad Talk Roundtable. And you can always find me on Twitter at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S. You can also drop into the broadtalk.net website and subscribe to my newsletter and I'll send you an occasional update on what's happening and perhaps share a little bit of what's playing on my mind. But now, time to introduce you to Senator Maureen Faruqi. Maureen has been, well, she has too many accolades to her, her name to list, to be honest. But in brief, let me tell you a little bit about this gutsy Pakistan-born engineer who grew up to become the first Muslim woman to be elected to an Australian parliament when she entered the New South Wales parliament in 2013. And later in 2018, she became the first Muslim senator in the Australian Federal Parliament, where she remains an outspoken and at times noisy representative of the Greens. Her book, Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud, is a rollicking read and I highly recommend it. Brace yourself. Maureen, welcome to Broad Talk. Hello, Virginia. It is so lovely to be here chatting to you. Oh, it's lovely to have you. Now, let's start by going back to where you were born. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. What sort of childhood did you have? Was it happy? Was it comfortable? Was it was it inquisitive? So I was born in Lahore in Pakistan. Uh, and from what my mother tells me, I was a happy child, but also a very stubborn one. Um, that's what she says. Uh, and I'll tell you, a little bit of a story and why I say it's not stubbornness, but it's more determination. Uh, so my mom, who I call Ammi, tells me that I always had this passion for fairness and justice uh, pretty early on as a young girl. And she reminds me of the arguments I would have with her pretty much on a daily basis mm -hmm. about the unfairness of how my two elder brothers were allowed to do certain things and I wasn't because they weren't the things that girls did. So you uh, and your older sisters? I didn't. I had two older brothers and then five years after me came a younger sister. So I guess I cleared the path a little bit for her. Um, so two of those things were playing cricket um, in the street with the other boys in the neighbourhood and flying kites from the rooftop of my head. And I just couldn't understand why girls couldn't do those things. Um, so I fought with her, I think, every single day and, and got through. And did by the time... Ask, can hmm. I just ask you, Maureen, did your mum explain to you that girls couldn't do those things or or did she encourage you to have a go? I mean, how did, how did you know that girls weren't allowed to do those things? Um, listen, if you look at, um, you know, the cricket teams at that time or even in Australia at that time, it was men who played cricket, right? Um, there were no women's teams at all. So it was not the thing that was done by girls. Um, same with flying kites. It's a sport kind of thing, you know. It's it's boys who played those sports. So why was my daughter, I think my mum would be questioning, why does she want to do this? And I think the, the daily arguments, which I in the end won, probably did convince her that this was like something that existed through patriarchy. Um, and didn't need to be there. And, you know, by the time it came time for me to study um, at uni and I wanted to do civil engineering. And again, it wasn't at that time the love for engineering, I think, but more that I wanted to prove a point. This was such a male dominated profession. And why shouldn't uh, women do it? 
You came from a family with a long background of engineers. Your father was an engineer also, and you had many engineers around in your extended family. So I guess, you know, that kind of makes sense. But did, did you, did you really love engineering? Was that, was that it? Or was more just, it was a very, um, reputable kind of profession because your dad did it? I didn't love engineering when I decided that I wanted to be an engineer. It was something my um, dad was. My two uh, older brothers also did civil engineering. Um, And I think why engineering is popular in Pakistan is because it is a profession where you you can earn a living and, you know, make do better than just making ends meet. Um, Most people used to at that time, this is like the 70s, early 80s, engineering or medicine because those were essential services in a way and you could get you could get a job and earn an income uh, for me it was more about proving the point that civil engineering there was hardly any women who were civil engineers in the country at that time um, and for me that was it it was about gender equity those kind of gender equity has always been a passion of mine from a very young age. Do you know where that came from, though? I mean, if if your mother wasn't necessarily, a, you know, a strong feminist and a, an advocate, um, where did Maureen Faruqi pick up that idea that inequality between the sexes was wrong? Well, it partly came from an aunt of mine who was a fierce, fierce feminist who I was very, very close to. Um, and, you know, I would often see her having arguments with the men in the family at you know around the dinner table uh, about this issue and she was always spunky and fiery and basically she told me how to she taught me how to be independent how to be loud and a proud woman Um, and so that's where it came from and you know like I said flying kites and playing cricket may have come after a lot of arguments but by the time it was for me to study engineering, there was no resistance at all. It was like, okay, she's going to do what she wants to do. <laughs> Just let her do it. My dad is very proud of me. Um, he has passed away now, but very proud of me for doing engineering. And I was really the only woman in uh, once I started working as a professional, the only woman structural engineer in a big company of 2,000 uh, men, literally. So what was the actual uh, experience like at university um, uh, doing something like engineering? How were you received? How were you treated by your peers? So my father was not only an engineer, but he was also a professor um, at university. And we in in Pakistan, universities are set up in the way where academics um, live on campus as well. Um, So I lived in that environment. So it was a very comfortable environment for me. But it was still, it was lonely because in a cohort of about 250 students, there were just four of us women. Um, so it, it, it was lonely, but there was a lot of respect, I have to say that, given that, you know, Pakistan still sits quite low on the gender equity ladder. There was a lot of respect, um, you know, amongst my fellow um, kind of peers uh, for women, you know, breaking that, um, breaking that uh, you know, cycle. I wonder though how much of that respect might have also been because you were from what sounds like a relatively, I don't know, privilege is the right word, but certainly respectable family, your father, a professor as well, and, and an engineer. I mean, could that have played into how you were treated or, or was it was it just generally a, a respect for a smart young woman? I think it could have played into it, but 
Um, the other uh, three women who were studying engineering with me didn't come from the same background, but they were respected as well. Um, so I think there was a level of respect. Things were changing in Pakistan. Um, but yeah, definitely, there was a level of respect. Even when I started working professionally and was the only woman engineer there, um, there was a lot of respect there. Um, and I was quite shocked, I have to say, when I moved to Australia. It was a few years after I had graduated, got married. Um, our son was one year old when we decided to move. And living in Pakistan, I had always thought, Virginia, that uh, and Pakistan, of course, was a colonized country as well. It was the idea, the narrative that we grew up with was that, you know, Western, so-called Western countries uh, was so much better um, than us in terms of uh, gender equity, in terms of fairness and justice. So I was quite shocked when I got here because I was expecting a lot more women civil engineers in, in Australia. I came here on a Saturday. I started doing my master's at the School of Civil uh, and Environmental Engineering at the University of New South Wales and was pretty shocked to find out that amongst, I don't know, 50 or 60 academics, there was just one woman um, there as well. This was the early 90s. So I think that kind of really showed me that this, I just guess this fight for gender equity is pretty universal still. And, you know, and th there has to be a collective effort in um, dismantling patriarchy. When you did arrive in Australia, and I find this fascinating because I think it's it's so valuable for those of us born and living here to to hear the the reflections and responses people from outside have when they arrive here, and it, I find it really really instructive. When you did, I mean, apart from the fact that you found there weren't many other women around on campus doing what you were doing. What about just the general treatment of women? Um, did, did, you, did you find that better than where you'd come from? I did, in a way. I mean, there are differences, obviously, in terms of laws, in terms of, you know, some of the society's attitudes towards women um, in Australia. Um, and, you know, but I did come with rose-coloured glasses on as well. Um, like I said, you know, these were places that I thought had dealt with inequality, had dealt with uh, patriarchy, and um, slowly those rose-coloured glasses started coming off, especially with the treatment of First Nations people and the injustices that still existed in society. But as I lived here longer, I did start feeling the quite visceral fear of the intersection of sexism and racism especially for women of colour in public life. How did you start to feel that? How did it manifest? I think it manifested quite early on. Um, there were incidents always, um, you know, in your kind of daily dealings, even when I was not in public life, uh, about, uh, you know, on racism. And I'll give you one example. Once I had done my master's in environmental in engineering, my PhD in environmental engineering, I had already I already had work experience in structural engineering. The first job that I could actually find after all of that was at as a you know first like a starting engineer. So the salary and the position that I was offered was for someone who had just come out of uni and done their undergraduate. Uh, mm -hmm. And even then, the the head of that particular department in that consulting firm wanted to interview him myself to see if I was a cultural fit. Uh, and this is the late 90s. 
So that's one example of how um, it manifested, you know, every day. But, you know, when you come to a new country, I didn't want another notch in kind of my troublemaker belt. So you you just keep quiet and you, you know, keep moving on. You know, you think you've got to find your feet. Um, you've got to make a life here. You came here for a reason for, you know, for your children to have a better life. Um, all of that plays into you. And you just, the, the immediate thoughts that I would have when incidents like this would happen with me, my children, or my husband was, oh, no, no, maybe we have done something wrong. Um, second was, oh, no, maybe these people don't know us. And once they know us, things will be better. Uh, but then in the end, you do realize that there is more to it than that. Uh, and there is discrimination. You, you mentioned you, you when you came here wanting a better life. Is that what brought you to Australia that you thought, I know you were fairly newly married, that you thought it would be a better place to, to have children, bring up children? Um, it was. And there was uh, one particular issue that bothered both my husband and me. Um, like I said, we grew up in the 70s. And we grew up with uh, parents, both of us, who... For them, integrity and honesty was everything. And by the time we got into the workforce in Pakistan, corruption had really set in. Corruption at a political level, corruption, um, you know, where people, you'd have to pay people to do things like get a passport made or a driver's license. There was no other way. You either had to know someone um, in those departments or you had to bribe people. And that just did not sit well at all with us. Uh, we just thought, let's try something else and see whether things are better in Australia. And I sometimes laugh. Things are better, of course. They, in, corruption is not entrenched as it was in Pakistan at that time. But in my first year in New South Wales Parliament, 10 Liberal MPs um, had to leave Parliament or go to the back bench because of corruption allegations. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of... <laughs> Um, so there we go. <laughs> I'm still fighting corruption, Virginia. Could you brought it with you, perhaps? Yeah, yeah uh, well, I was going to say, isn't that funny? It is not funny at all. It is absolutely tragic, but the irony is quite extraordinary. Just before we talk a little bit uh, about your parliamentary life and what got you into politics, I want to ask you about your husband. Now, it was an arranged marriage, and nevertheless, you've been together for, gosh, couple of 32 years this year over three decades so <laughs> the arrangement worked quite well um tell me was was it love at first sight it was actually love at first sight so he worked in and I talk about this in the book that you mentioned so he worked in the same company that I started working in and my first day um at work I saw him there and you know I it was, it's a love story, uh, you know, even though the marriage was arranged later on. Um, I, our eyes met across, the, you know, the, the hallway and that was it for both of us. Um, but, you know, we found out that there were connections between our families and that's how the marriage was arranged. Um, and I tell you, I couldn't have done what I have done in my life without the unequivocal, you know, support from my husband. It's an interesting one, Maureen, because I know you have been criticised in the media uh, since becoming a politician for speaking in support of arranged marriages. Well, that's certainly the the, the way the media story was was um, unfurled, so to speak. Um, did did that hurt that kind of criticism? 
you know, I am criticized for pretty much everything I say in some in some parts of the media and the social and social media. And often, you know, that was an article that the Daily Mail did. It was pretty much a clickbait article. And I was trying to make a completely different point about the difference between arranged marriages and forced marriages. Uh, and that that's how it panned out. But I have become very used um, to that sort of um, clickbaiting. But it still hurts um, because there is so much of it and it happens literally every single day. You do attract a huge amount of really vicious uh, abuse, particularly online. I've been uh, having a look through some of those feeds and was absolutely shocked at, um, I thought I'd seen a lot of it, but shocked at the consistently abusive, um, racist and and sexist, of course, uh, attacks that you get, which makes one wonder why you do it? Why, why, why not only become a politician but remain a politician and, and then make it even potentially worse by going from the New South Wales Parliament into the federal arena, into the Senate? Why do it? Well, I, you know, like I said, I never expected the, you know, the, the, the sexism or the, or the patriarchy that exists in Australia or the gender inequality uh, when I moved here from Pakistan. But I also never expected that barrage of vicious hate, racism, sexism that is thrown at me. And for me, yes, it, it is. It Of course it hurts. Of course it has an emotional impact on you. But I know that there are many others like me who also face that. And I don't think that should be the case. So for me, it is actually a mission to try and call it out and change things for the better because I want other people like me to be able to take that same journey that I have done, but without less barriers and less challenges that I have faced. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the very interesting tactics that you deployed to deal with some of that hate mail that you get. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. So, Maureen, we were talking about some of the uh, the really, really tough stuff that you have faced as a federal politician, as a senator, a Green senator. I'd like you to explain how you came up with this very clever thing that you did to respond to some of the horrible online trolling. I've got to say, when I saw some memes 
titled Love Letters to Maureen, I thought, <laughs> what is she doing? <laughs> She's publishing her love letters. And then I started reading them and realised, oh, no, this is something quite different. Tell us what they're about. Well, the idea was to counter hate with love, to be frank. Um, so when the level of the toxicity was at its peak in New South Wales Parliament, my team and I just sat down. And, you know, it's not just me, Virginia, that is hurt and sees this and is uh, kind of emotionally impacted. It's the team that works with me because they see it as well. It's my children. They see it as well. We just thought it wasn't appropriate for us to remain silent anymore, that this needed to be exposed, that people actually needed to know that this is what's going on in society. Um, But how to do it? You know, like, um, do we just put up those messages that come? And then it was actually a team effort. So I can't claim all the credit for that idea of love letters to Marine. We were on a retreat, a team retreat, and we thought, no, let's do it this way. So every few weeks, we would take a particularly vile message, and I would respond to it in a kind of a humorous, sassy way, which we thought might engage people, um, as well as expose the, you know, the so-called trolls who are really real people, you know, sitting behind keyboards, sending this uh, vile stuff. So if you... If you think it's all right, I might read a couple of those out to you yeah, for your, I, I, for your just, listeners. They're hilarious. And for those of you listening, you know, it's worth actually getting online and having a look because the memes themselves are really quite beautiful. Um, so here's one um, to Mitchell who asked, how the fuck has a Muslim been let into Australian politics? I offered, hi, Mitchell. I know, right? One minute it's white Australia and then bam. And then we'll do one more, maybe, which is um, Jamie. He expressed his disagreement with me and said, Marine, I think we disagree on two key points, and that's killing greyhounds to save them doesn't make sense, and Muslim immigration to Australia was the worst thing since smallpox. So I had to be honest and say, Dear Jamie, I have a hunch we would disagree on more than that. <laughs> so even we didn't realize it was very cathartic to us and people who saw it were quite shocked and said they did not know that this sort of stuff went on for public uh, women of color. And then and, and, and I think you've been very polite in the ones that you've just chosen to read out because some of them were just so foul <laughs> and I, that I yeah. had to do a double take when I read them. And incredibly, some of them were even from women who use yes. disgusting language, really, really disgusting language to you, about you, uh, including what they wanted to happen to you, um, which was violent. Yes. Um, but your responses um, have always been funny and, and kind of sweet. But I, I loved in particular one where you even suggested that the writer, if he's going to put so much energy into his hate and his sexism and, and misogyny, that he also puts a bit of time into doing a spell check. <laughs> <laughs> spelling was terrible. Which yeah. atrocious, atrocious spelling. Yeah, um, but you know, yeah. I've got a headache reading your, your spelling. <laughs> um, it did get a lot of international media coverage as well, and so many people then started coming out on my social media pages, you know, and they were calling out these so-called trolls. So mm-hmm. it did develop a bit of a community of people. Uh, But that was the time when I was in New South Wales Parliament. And like you said, I had no idea that when I would go move into the Senate, that this would just explode. Mm. Um, This Mm. um, hate would just explode. 
um, and it still keeps coming. We, we've given up on the love letters and we have put our focus now into actually looking at how we, you know, we could change hate laws, we could make social media companies more responsible for what happens on their platforms. But also, I think this has increased Virginia in my 30 years in Australia. When I came to Australia, I actually remember quite well that I, I actually felt quite welcome. There mm. wasn't this seer of racism that is now. And I think it has had a lot to do with politicians who have been dog whistling, who have been mm. openly spouting racism um, in, in parliament, outside of it. And that has, I think, legitimized a lot of people in society to be able to do the same. Which is a, a shocking uh, admission, but I think that's very true. And certainly as someone who um, has a front row seat he, living here in Canberra to Parliament House. And having be, being a journalist for, gosh, nearly 30 years, I am shocked at how grubby um, our, our parliamentary behaviour has become. And, yes, you've, you know, you're right at the centre of that. Marine, let me ask you this, though. I mean, we want more women and, of course, diverse women to be change makers. But, you know, as you've identified, the harassment, the bullying, the racism, the sexism is not only not easy, but it's getting worse so, you know, to, to what extent do you think that is, is still deterring women of, of diverse ethnic backgrounds and, and what can be done about that? I actually don't think it is. The, the women of diverse backgrounds that I meet every single day, and especially um, younger women, you know, they actually want to push back on this. They're all fired up. Uh, and so many of them, you know, are front and centre of the um, student climate movement as well. So I think they are really passionate about changing the world. And we have seen after this election, uh, I couldn't be happier that we are seeing much more diversity in parliament, more women, more First Nations women, um, you know, more women of colour. And I think that is really, really exciting to see because at the end of the day, and this has been my message to a lot of women of colour, you know, no one's going to roll out a red carpet for us and say, come on, you know, we're opening all these doors for you. The, the reality is that we have to roll up our sleeves and, and do the hard yards. And, you know, we we are very capable. Um, and I think more women realize that. But I do hear a lot from young women of color, especially from South Asian backgrounds, Virginia, who come up and have a chat to me. And they do tell me that once I was in parliament, they could see someone like mm. me. And that mm. really changed in their imagination what they could do. And I frankly didn't ever think about that at all when I went into parliament. I knew that I had a role to play and make things easier and better for others like me, but I didn't know what a big impact representation does have. It is absolutely enormous and can never be um, underestimated. And I, I've just got to add to this, uh, Maureen, I too recently was reminded of the power of representation in, in my industry, in the media industry, when the beautiful, wonderful icon of Australian media, um, Caroline Jones, died. She passed away just recently. And uh, Caroline was the first woman I saw as, as a young student on television presenting Four Corners in a serious journalism role. There were only five women on television at the time right across Australia in journalism roles. And when I, I remember the moment I saw her doing that and saw she was so good at it and 
highly regarded, respected. I remember having that sort of click in my brain about what was possible simply because I saw a woman doing it. Because up until then, it was only men and all white, you know, middle-aged men. Well, they seem middle-aged to me. But, uh, yeah, the power of seeing someone in a role that you assumed wasn't for you is incredible incredibly influential I think yeah but well, I didn't have that you know I was complete outsider um there was no one like me in politics well um, coming coming back to that then I, I, I getting back to my four questions that I said I'd ask at the beginning the moment then what was the moment and, and why you what made you think yes I will do this even though you'd already developed a reputation of being a bit too loud, a bit too migrant, a bit too Muslim, <laughs> a bit too gorgeous as a woman, you know, all the wrong things. Um, what, what was the moment that made you think, yeah, I can do it, I will do it? If there was one moment, I would say it was, I think it was the 2011 election in New South Wales. Um, I had already been a member of the Greens for some years um, at that time, but I loved my job. I was uh, teaching environmental sustainability to master's students at UNSW, and I absolutely loved it. If there was one thing I wanted to do in life, it was to be a teacher. And, you know, I had made it. Um, So being a politician was not on the radar at all. But that 2011 election, we Greens in New South Wales put up a candidate in every seat. Um, I was in the seat, Christina Keneally's seat of Heffron. Christina Keneally was the premier at that time. And my Greens local group said, oh, Marion, uh, we can't find anyone. Would you um, Would you do it? And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, I'm working full time. I won't have much time, but I'll do whatever I can. It's safest labor seat. Obviously, I'm not going to win. So not uh, being an MP was never on the horizon. But, you know, I don't do things by halves. So I wasn't happy to be a paper candidate. And we got mm-hmm. together a team of volunteers and we started door knocking almost every night. I would come home from work and three or four of us would go out and open up people's front gates, knock on their doors and have a conversation. And, you know, that just changed my world. I just felt it was such a privilege to be able to knock on someone's door, have a chat with them about what they wanted Australia to be like, you know, what were um, you know, what were their dreams and hopes uh, for for this country and for the world. And by and large, people were very happy to have a chat with you or they would just say, you know, politely, sorry, I'm busy. Um, You know, they would invite you in for cups of tea, even uh, glasses of iced water when it was hot. One door that I knocked on also, you know, that a person gave me a plant from their garden uh, when I said this was my dad's favorite plant. So I think that's really exhilarated me. And I found that, you know, 20 years of it, experience that I had in Pakistan and here working had given me, I guess, the ability to be able to talk to anyone, literally. Mm. I had a full life experience. You know, I had come here as a migrant. I had lived on the dole. I had lived kind of week to week because we had no money. My husband, who's also a civil engineer, you know, drove a taxi. We did whatever we could, you know, to make ends meet. And and that perspective, I just thought I could I really want to take these people's ideas and views into Parliament. Um, and I think, you know, I, I can do this. So that that was the moment. And I still love door knocking as the best kind of campaigning um, tool because it, it allows you to talk to people without the gatekeeping, you mm-hmm. know, of, of focus groups or, uh, you know, 
even a telephone. And yeah, that was it. And from there on, I think I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And three years on, I was in New South Wales Parliament. Sometimes, you know, luck plays a bit of a role as well. You're in the right place at the right time too. But you made the decision that you would do it. Can I just ask you a stupid question and just very quickly about door knocking? Because I I am in awe of politicians from any persuasion that, that do door knocking and that enjoy it. Did you ever worry about being asked about things that you couldn't answer, um, about policy issues that you couldn't answer? All the time. All the time. (laughs) That is kind of your worst nightmare. All the time. Um, But then, you know, I, um, one of my, um, I guess, role models was my, you know, a teacher at UNSW, Ronnie Harding. And when I started working there as an academic, she was the one who hired me. And her most wise piece of advice for me was, Marine, you don't know everything. So when students ask you something you don't know about, don't bullshit them. Just admit that you don't know it. You look it up and you will come back to them. And that's exactly uh, what I would do if I didn't know about policy. And, you know, people appreciate that. Everyone knows that no one can know everything. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there were a few doors, I have to admit, a few doors that that were closed in my face. People saying, you know, similar stories like you're not even from here. Why do you even want to be in politics. But by and large, it really did restore my faith in humanity as well. And so many doors we knocked on Virginia, people said, I've lived here for 40 years. No one, no politician has ever knocked on my door. And the reason for that being that it was a safe Labour seat. Mm -hmm. So people were taken for granted. And I still meet some of those people whose doors I knocked on 10 years ago. I met some during this election, actually, and they told me, Marine, remember you knocked on my door and I started voting <laughs> green that that election and I have never stopped. Wow. That's, so that's, that's the power. I love it when people say to you, you've probably knocked on 5,000, maybe 10,000, 20,000 doors to say, oh, remember you knocked on my door? Of course you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you just to move it on. Our next um, question, the biggest challenge. What would you say has been the biggest challenge in your change maker journey? Um, So for me, the biggest challenge is something that I have to deal with every single day, and that really is um, the racism um, that comes through. It it really, I guess it challenges my belonging to a place which is my home. It, it, you know, like I've lived here now longer than I've lived in Pakistan. I'm not going to go anywhere. This is where I've made a life. This is where my kids, um, you know, grew up. Um, so that does really challenge me. And, and this idea, which I realized a lot later on, is that for some of us, our Australianness may always be conditional. Mm-hmm. And it may be conditional on us just, you know, keeping our heads down and our mouths shut. You know, the good migrant who just goes on and does works hard and is forever grateful for being let in into this wonderful country, this is Australia, or, you know, conditional on agreeing with whoever is in power on, or conditional on, um, you know, kind of giving up your identity and assimilating. Um, and I have, I guess, the pressure to just keep proving that you are worth what you are doing. You know, you, uh, you have a worth in society. I think that does combined with toxicity and racism does have a very grinding effect on you and people don't often talk about it 
it does really grind you down. Um, this idea that you're always being other, you're being robbed of your agency, you're being silenced. But for me, it also means that I decided to be louder and louder. I'm unapologetic. I am completely unapologetic about being who I am. And that's how you deal with that, that grinding down. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it's how. Going um, yeah. the other way, I suppose. Um, it could. Is- it could. And it needs, I th- and I do need support from people to allow me to be able to do that. And there are days when I, when I cry. There are days when I don't feel like I want to get out of bed. There are days when my husband kind of holds me till, you know, my sobbing has stopped. So that's all part and parcel of it. But. I am here for a reason. I am here to challenge the status quo. I don't want to join the system. Um, so, yeah, I'll I'll keep at it till things get better. I have to ask you this. On those days when you are sobbing and you feel like you've had enough and you can't do it anymore, how do you get past that? I actually remind myself of the most amazing people that I have met through this journey in politics, just like everyday people who I've met, um, you know, in women's refuges, in, um, you know, at abortion clinics, in camping grounds, in, you know, forests, on train stations, on polling booths, who want to see things change for the better, who want to see the inequality gap reduced and gone, who want everyone in Australia um, to have opportunities and inequality, no matter where they come from, what their skin color, what their religion, what their social status, these are the people who inspire me most of all because they're doing it for, for no reason other than it's the right thing to do. That's what gives me hope. And that is really what gets me out of bed. That is really what, you know, dries my tears. And, um, you know, there actually hasn't been a single day um, in my life as a politician where I, I have not gotten out of bed in the morning uh, with, you know, a, a jump in my step because I know that there are so many people out there um, who who give me love um, and who really want me to do what I'm doing. That's such a beautiful answer, Maureen. It, it really, um, yeah, it's incredibly powerful and it speaks to such a strong humanity connection with humanity. I I have to just ask you our last question, and you've sort of touched on this, but it's an important one. I often find myself wondering what is the cost, the human cost of being a change maker, particularly for women. So what's been the cost for you, Maureen, in, in being a change maker over years upon years? I mean, obviously, you've put in enormous time and energy, but what's been the, the, the big personal cost? And I did contemplate on this question a lot as well, Virginia. The last chapter of my book is called, Is It Worth It? And some someone mentioned the other day to me that the epilogue in my book is the longest they've ever read. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, fair enough. When you're contemplating on the last, you know, whatever, 10 years of your life, you've got to give it some space. Um, there is absolutely a personal cost. Um, and for me, that personal cost has come in the way of, I guess, friends drifting away because there just isn't enough time for me to be able to have those relationships. Um, the personal cost came in in the way of me not being able to be there for my children at times when they needed me. I mean, they are absolutely wonderful and, you know, um, they support me every single day. But 
you know, those are the costs you you pay by, I guess, um, giving up on some of the things that I would have loved to do with family and friends. Well, I guess there are costs and consequences of all our choices. But uh, I think, by and large, Marine Faruqi, um, Australia is very, very, very lucky that you chose to uh, to bear that cost. So I, I want to thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on to our Broad Talk Change Maker series and be part of our exhibition. And um, thank you for being such a wonderful, wonderful guest on, on Broad Talk. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Virginia. I am very grateful for, uh, while I get a lot of hate, I get a lot of love from the people around me. Um, and I'm in such a privileged position and I want to use it every single second to make improve things for everyone who is here. So thank you so much for having me and considering me. Oh, look, thank you. Thank you. And to you for staying with us and listening to this episode of Changemakers, the Broad Talk Changemaker series. Thank you for, for joining us. And I bet uh, if you're still with us at this stage like me, you're feeling quite overwhelmed by what a, a, a beautiful person Maureen is and what wisdom there is in her story of being a changemaker. So make sure you stick with us for the rest of this series because we've got some incredible women um, who we will be featuring in the Broad Talk Changemaker series. So download us and get in contact. Tell us what you think. And don't forget, keep talking. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.